Okay, uh, like to get started, try to keep this uh, running on time. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm Gene Healy. I'm a vice president here at the Cato Institute. And over the last six months, there's been a lot of talk about FDR's response to the Great Depression and what lessons we might draw from that experience. And I think this morning's speakers did, or the the earlier panel, rather, uh, did an excellent job uh, fleshing that out. But there's another aspect of the New Deal's legacy that I think has not gotten the attention that it deserves, and that's the constitutional legacy of the New Deal, which has fundamentally shaped our ongoing federal bailout. Uh, In 1995, Judge Douglas Ginsburg published an important article in in the Cato Institute's Regulation magazine, uh, in which he coined the phrase, the Constitution in exile, to refer to the fundamental limits on on federal power that had uh, vanished during FDR's constitutional revolution, uh, a narrower interpretation of the commerce power, the non-delegation doctrine, provisions like this. Uh, And uh, as it happens, the the article that Ginsburg was was, uh, writing was actually a review of David Schoenbrod's uh, excellent book, Power Without Responsibility. Uh, A couple years later, uh, another of our panelists, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, popularized that phrase uh, from Ginsburg's review, The Constitution in Exile, in a uh, 2005 uh, New York Times Magazine article. Uh, so we, we've, uh, our panelists have been in, involved in this debate for, for quite some time. And whenever you think of the legitimacy and the desirability of the constitutional changes that occurred during the New Deal, uh, the debate over the Constitution in exile is still vital today. Uh, because the the changes that were made uh, have been instrumental to what's going on right now with the stimulus package and the TARP plan. Uh, Back in December, uh, on this note, I I read something that almost ruined my Christmas. Uh, At the time, if you remember, Congress was debating a bill to bail out uh, American automakers, and that bill failed. But a couple of days later, President Bush announced that he'd decided to lend some $17 billion to Chrysler and GM anyway. And on December 23rd, the Washington Post quoted a Bush spokesman named Tony Fratto, who said something that tells you a lot about uh, the constitutional regime as it stands today. Fratto said, quote, Congress lost its opportunity to be a partner because they couldn't get their job done. This is not the way we wanted to deal with this issue. We wanted to deal with it in partnership. What Congress said is we can't get it done, so it's up to the White House to get it done. So under this way of thinking, Congress didn't do its job. It failed to ratify what the president wanted to do, and so therefore the president had every right to take that action anyway, regardless of what Congress said. And when I read that quote from Fratto, I thought, well, there goes George W. Bush again, displaying contempt for Congress and making it clear that the president is the sole constitutional decider uh, who, in the midst of crisis, can do whatever he wants. And Bush had claimed to act under the uh, TARP law, the the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, uh, a law passed uh, to allow the Treasury Department to buy up, quote, troubled assets from, quote, financial institutions. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world 
could any honest person argue that giving money to Chrysler and GM was authorized by that language? But then when you actually look at the statute, it turns out that the definitions of troubled asset and financial institution are so unconscionably, unspeakably broad that the president actually had a pretty decent case that he could fit cars under the tarp. Before 1937, that, that sort of broad delegation might have been struck down by the Supreme Court, but not now. And whatever you think of the wisdom of that policy, the uh, wisdom of bailing out American automakers, I think there's, you have to admit that there's something a little unsettling when the president exercises the power of the purse and starts remaking the economy uh, through executive fiat. Uh, Robert Reich, Clinton's labor secretary, who's nobody's libertarian, uh, said as much. He wrote on his blog that, call me old-fashioned, but I believe in the democratic process. Under our Constitution, Congress is in charge of appropriating taxpayer money. If Congress explicitly decides not to appropriate it for a certain purpose, where does the White House get the right to do it anyway by pulling money out of another bag? Uh, And that's a fair question. Other fair questions uh, related to the constitutional legacy of the New Deal include, uh, what's the future of the Constitution in exile? Uh, Can we restore some of these key protections, these exiled provisions, that disappeared during the New Deal. Uh, should we want to, even, even if we could? And we have, a, we have an all-star lineup here this afternoon to discuss these issues, and I can honestly say that I, I can't think of three other people that I'd rather hear address them. Our first speaker is Randy Barnett. Uh, professor Barnett is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center. Center. He's a graduate of Northwestern University and Harvard Law School and also served as a prosecutor in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago. Uh, In 2004, Professor Barnett appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court to argue the medical cannabis case of Gonzalez versus Raich. Uh, He's written eight books, including Restoring the Lost Constitution, the Presumption of Liberty, which addresses many of these issues. And uh, please welcome Professor Barnett. Well, thank you, Gene. It's always a great pleasure to be back at Cato. Uh, When faced with this topic, it was very difficult to figure out what you could say in 10 minutes that would be of interest and would be uh, uh, something you might not expect, something that you would learn, not just repeating the same old, same old. Uh, and so uh, what I came up with uh, was a topic that I'm calling what, this New Deal, what the New Deal Court Did Not Do. So um, in these remarks, uh, I'm not going to deny that the New Deal Court radically shifted constitutional law from what it had been before because it clearly did that. Nor will I be denying that this shift violated the original meaning of the Constitution because I, I think it did, um, although I'm not going to be uh, defending that proposition here today. Instead, I want to suggest that this rightly labeled New Deal constitutional revolution was actually much less revolutionary than it has, than has been taught by generations of law professors who, who want to see it uh, be even – who want to make it out to be even more revolutionary than it was, that the New Deal court actually respected – the original meaning of the Constitution to a greater degree than law professors who reject original meaning want to admit. 
And in order to make this case briefly, I'm going to focus on two examples. The first concerns the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, by which uh, uh, which was expanded in its scope or allegedly expanded in its scope to allow government to do more. And the second concerns the two due process clauses of the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment, which uh, was shrunk, which were shrunk up by the New Deal Court to uh, stop uh, scrutinizing what the court, what the government was doing at the state and federal level. So I'm going to talk about the Commerce Clause. I'm going to talk about the Due Process Clause. So let's first talk about the New Deal Court's treatment of the Commerce Clause. Critics of originalism, and by originalism I mean those who think that the meaning of the Constitution is the meaning it had when it was enacted and it cannot be changed except by Article V Amendment, critics of originalism claim uh, that the meaning of the text of the Constitution can change over time. Sometimes this is called the living Constitution idea. Or that judges should be free to alter the meaning of the text to adjust the Constitution to modern problems unforeseen by those who wrote and ratified it. Now, with respect to the meaning, for example, of the power to regulate commerce among the several states, uh, this is the Commerce Clause or part of the Commerce Clause, uh, non-originalists contend, um, or um, perhaps a better word is imply, that the meaning of the term commerce has evolved from its original meaning. Otherwise, what would it mean to say that the Commerce Clause, the meaning of the Commerce Clause has has evolved over time? And it must be the meaning of the word commerce, among other things. Um, Now, while at the founding, the term commerce referred to the movement of goods via trade and navigation and excluded, the word commerce excluded manufacturing and agricultural production of goods that were then traded in commerce – Commerce today is sometimes said by law professors to embrace all economic activity or perhaps going in so far as to say it embraces all intercourse, a word that John Marshall uses in a famous Commerce Clause case, all intercourse, whether economic or not. Okay, yet what I want to point out is that the New Deal Court itself, the Supreme Court during the New Deal period, which I'm going to refer to as the New Deal Court, never even hinted at a change in the meaning of the word commerce. In United States versus Darby, the court acknowledged that manufacture was not commerce. Here's what the court says. While manufacture is not of itself interstate commerce, that's pretty clear. Um, that's what it's saying. The shipment of manufactured goods interstate is such commerce, is such commerce. The shipment of such goods interstate is such commerce. And the prohibition of such shipment by Congress is indubitably a regulation of commerce. So here, it's clearly not saying that commerce is anything more than what it originally meant. In Wickard versus Filburn, the court acknowledged that agriculture was not commerce. So first in Darby, it's acknowledging that manufacturing is not commerce. Now in Wickard, it's acknowledging that agriculture is not commerce. Here's what the court said about Roscoe Filburn's growing of wheat and feeding it to his own livestock. Quote, even if Apelli's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce. In other words, though Filburn's growing of wheat on his own land to feed his own livestock, quote, may not be regarded as commerce, unquote, Congress may nevertheless regulate it. So if the New Deal Court never changed the meaning of the word commerce in the Commerce Clause, what did it do? in its so-called Commerce Clause jurisprudence. 
Well, what it did was essentially expand the reach of the Necessary and Proper Clause, which gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary to put into execution its foregoing powers, which includes the Commerce Clause. Its key move came in the Darby case I just mentioned, when after affirming explicitly that manufacturing was not commerce, the court then stated the following. There remains the question whether such restriction on the production of goods for commerce is a permissible exercise of the commerce power. The commerce, the power of Congress over interstate commerce is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the several states. Now that's quite a claim. Let me just read that one again. The power of Congress over interstate commerce is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the several states. It's not changing the meaning of the words. It's saying it's not confined to the meaning of the words. It extends to, now the court continues, it extends to those activities intrastate which so affect interstate commerce or the exercise of the power of Congress over it um, as to make regulation of them appropriate means to the attainment of a legitimate end, the exercise of the granted power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. Now, it's highly revealing that after this lengthy passage I just quoted to you, the authority for this proposition was not the famous Marshall Court Commerce Clause case of Gibbons versus Ogden, which is taught in constitutional law, but the necessary and proper clause case of McCulloch versus Maryland. It's McCulloch versus Maryland, which is an interpretation or a construction of the necessary and proper clause, which is the authority for saying Congress is not limited in its power to the regulation of interstate commerce. To my knowledge, the Supreme Court has never asserted any change in the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. And the New Deal Supreme Court certainly asserted no such change. Instead, it loosened up its own doctrines. Sometimes we could call that constitutional law as opposed to the Constitution itself. It loosened up its own doctrines that previously had attempted to confine the commerce power of of Congress to its original meaning and justified its expansion beyond that by invoking the Necessary and Proper Clause, not the Commerce Clause. Now, you don't have to take my word that the New Deal could never updated the meaning of commerce in the Commerce Clause. You can refer to Justice Stevens' opinion in the medical cannabis case of Gonzalez versus Rates, which you've heard I argued in the Supreme Court. I was was Angel Rates' lawyer from from one of her three lawyers from day one in the case. So this this is a case I know pretty well. In his opinion in Rage, in his majority opinion in Rage, in which he uh, denied our claim that Congress had exceeded his power under the Commerce Clause to reach homegrown cannabis uh, that was legal under state law and, and not sold or bought, just used yourself, here's what he wrote. He said, Wickard establishes that Congress can regulate purely interstate activity that is not itself commercial in that it is not produced for sale. If it, conclu- if it concludes that failure to regulate that class of activity would undercut the regulation of the interstate market in that commodity, unquote. In other words, Justice Stevens concedes that the original meaning of commerce is limited to the sale of goods. At least as of 2005, that meaning had not changed. In Rach, it fell to the concurring opinion of Justice Scalia, an analysis which Justice Scalia himself mod- modestly described as more nuanced, than that of Justice Stevens, uh, to explain that the real source of the power of Congress to reach wholly intrastate non-economic activity when doing so was essential to a broader regulatory scheme of regulation was not the Commerce Clause but was the Necessary and Proper Clause and not any change in the meaning of the word commerce or the meaning of the Commerce Clause itself. 
Now, of course, in Raich, the plaintiffs were not engaged in commercial farming as Roscoe Filburn had been. And unlike Roscoe Filburn, Angel Raich was not feeding marijuana to her livestock and sending the livestock into interstate commerce as Roscoe Filburn had been doing. And unlike the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the Controlled Substances Act did not attempt to keep the price of interstate marijuana high as a way to boost the income of marijuana farmers. But instead, it was an effort to ban a form of commerce altogether. And even the Agricultural Adjustment Act, uh, upheld in Wickard, uh, uh, exempted small commercial farms from its scope. They weren't even covered by the AAA, something I didn't really, I didn't know at all as a law professor, something I only learned as a litigant, uh, argue, uh, briefing the case in, in, in rage. Um, given that Wickard was so hard for the Supreme Court to decide that it held the case over to be re-argued in a second term, that's how difficult it thought the Wickard case was before it decided it, it is inconceivable to me that the New Deal Court would have upheld a federal law that reached the growing of tomato plants in window boxes and backyard gardens solely for home consumption, which is, I think, the functional equivalent of the Rage case, the Rage decision. Now, in Rage, we briefed Wickard extensively, and it was discussed at some length in oral argument. Had the court been able to rely on Wickard or any other New Deal discussion for an expanded reading of the meaning of the word commerce in the Commerce Clause, it most certainly would have produced that authority. Indeed, in a footnote, it reproduces the passage from the majority in Rage, reproduces the passage from Wickard I just quoted for you earlier that said that the activity in Wickard may not itself have been commerce. Instead, the court in Raich purported to stay within the doctrine of United States versus Lopez, the gun-free school zone case that was decided during the Rehnquist court era, that held that the federal government could, could reach wholly intrastate economic activity that had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. In other words, what Raich said, what Lopez said is that uh, the, the, the Gun-Free School Zone Act did not even purport to reach economic activity, and all the New Deal cases uh, that did reach intrastate activity were confined to reaching economic, intrastate activity that was economic in nature. We brought our case because we wanted to contend that our activities were not economic, therefore could not be reached. Um, and that is what we argued, that, the, that, the, that, the, that growing marijuana to be consumed yourself is not an economic activity. Uh, now, how did the court, the majority in Raich, rebut that claim? Did it, did it cite a change in the meaning of the Constitution or, or anything like that? Well, no. For one thing, it was talking about economic activity, which is a doctrine itself created in the, in the Lopez case. It wasn't talking about the Constitution or the Commerce Clause. And it rebutted our claim that our, our client was not engaged in economic activity by citing the great uh, legal authority – uh, which was the 1966 edition of Webster's New International Dictionary. Uh, that was the court's sole authority for the proposition that economic means, quote, the production, distribution, and consumption of commodities. So on the basis of that authority, in 1966 version of Webster's, um, we lost on that issue of whether our client was engaged in economic activity. But what the New Deal court did not do with respect to the original meaning of the Commerce Clause, pales by comparison with what it did not do with respect to the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments. In Lochner v. New York, the Supreme Court, as you may know, struck down a law which made it a criminal offense for an employer to contract with an employee to work more than 60 hours a week. It held that such a restriction on the liberty of contract violated the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. The Lochner Court's reading of the Due Process Clause to protect the unenumerated liberty of contract was heavily criticized by New Deal progressives as judicial activism. 
That's where judicial activism originally comes from. Like the progressives of old, today's judicial conservatives think that only enumerated rights should be protected by the courts under the Due Process Clause and that legislatures should have complete discretion to regulate um, or restrict unenumerated liberties. They agree, in short, with the first sentence of the New Deal Court's famous footnote 4 in the 1938 case of U.S. v. Caroline Products, which said, There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such as those of the first ten amendments, which are deemed equally specific when held to be embraced within the 14th. Now, if footnote four was all the New Deal court had said about the Due Process Clause, we might conclude that the court had repudiated any and all protection of economic liberty. But it is a little-known fact that the New Deal court affirmed the protection of unenumerated liberties in Caroline Products itself. And I think this is a little-known fact because I think this part of the opinion gets cut out of modern American casebooks, this part of the opinion. Now, after asserting the existence of the presumption of constitutionality, to which footnote 4 refers, Justice Stone then observes, this is not in a footnote, but in the actual case, the text of the case itself, in a sentence that I have to warn you is almost impossible to follow when I read it out loud. I'm going to read it anyway, then I'll translate it for you. It is grammatically correct. It's just impossible to understand it. Here's what he said. He denied that a statute, he said a statute would deny due process which precluded the disproof in judicial proceedings of all facts which would show or tend to show that a statute depriving the suitor of life, liberty, or property had a rational basis. See, I told you. Um, In plain English, so far as the New Deal court was concerned, the presumption of constitutionality was rebuttable. According to Justice Stone, an economic regulation that deprives someone of life, liberty, or property could be challenged in a judicial proceeding by introducing proof of facts showing that the regulation was irrational. In fact, he said it would deny due process to prevent you from proving that. Now, this is not to deny that the New Deal Court rejected the Lochner majority's approach to due process. It did. But this lost passage from Caroline Products shows that the court did not adopt the approach of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, the hero of generations of law professors. In his dissenting opinion in Lochner, Holmes contended that the due process clause was satisfied, quote, if a reasonable man might think it is a proper measure on the score of health. Instead, the New Deal court adopted Justice Harlan's approach, in his dissenting opinion in Lochner, of presuming legislation to be reasonable and therefore constitutional unless evidence is introduced showing it was not. That's Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Lochner. In other words, whereas Holmes wanted to make the presumption of constitutionality virtually irrebuttable, Harlan advocated merely switching the burden of proof from the legislature to the individual challenging a law. It was not until the 1955 case of Williamson v. Leoptical that the Warren Court, not the New Deal Court, essentially adopted Justice Holmes's approach of upholding a statute if a judge can imagine a reason, a possible reason why a legislature might have enacted it, that revolutionary the, – the, that's something that the revolutionary New Deal court never had the chutzpah to try. So it is a myth perpetuated by law professors that the New Deal court revolutionized constitutional law by repudiating the original meaning of the Commerce Clause or eliminating all protection of economic liberty under the due process clauses. Of course, it is true that the New Deal Court overruled its own precedents to alter doctrines of constitutional law that had been developing for over 50 years. So much for stare decisis.
But if the Supreme Court is ever moved once again to repudiate its hallowed precedents and restore the lost Constitution by staying within the confines of its original meaning, there will be no New Deal court opinions establishing some updated meaning to stand in the way. Thanks. Our second speaker is David Schoenbrod. Professor Schoenbrod is a graduate of Yale Law School and Oxford University and a pioneer in the field of environmental law. He served as a staff attorney for the National Resources Defense Council during the 1970s, where he led the charge to get lead out of gasoline. Uh, he's trustee professor at New York Law School and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's written a number of books, the most pertinent of, w- pertinent of which, for our purposes, are Power Without Responsibility, How Congress Abuses the People Through Delegation, and Saving Our Environment from Washington, How Congress Grabs Power, Shirks Responsibility, and Shortchanges the People, which I believe is for, uh, for sale outside. Uh, so please welcome uh, Professor Schoenbrod. I'm going to focus on the uh, question of delegation of legislative powers uh, from Congress to uh, the executive. Uh, Recent months have shown vast increases in the power that Congress has given to the president. Ralph Nader wrote in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, I'm quoting, a congressional abdication of historic proportion has left the executive branch with nearly complete discretion over how to handle General Motors and Chrysler's restructuring. And he goes on to say, it is imperative that Congress honor its constitutional duties and demand the GM restructuring be sent to it. Now, this particular abdication would be exceeded if the House climate change bill becomes law. I want to be clear, I'm not here to talk about whether there should be a climate change bill or the details of it. I'm just using this as an illustration of the way things seem to be going. Um, Now, the assertion that the climate change bill is a vast abdication of legislative power may seem surprising because, after all, we've been told it's a cap-and-trade bill, and the whole idea of cap-and-trade is not to give power to regulators but to give power to the private sector to figure out how to Uh, cut greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And if we really did have a cap-and-trade bill, and if the allowances for the cap were auctioned off like candidate Obama talked about during the campaign, and the money were, uh, as many people have advocated, was used to reduce taxes or to be handed out by way of per, uh, per capita payments to individuals, really there would be very little for the federal government to do but to keep the books and enforce against violators. And Congress could write up such a statute in maybe 5, 10, at most 30 pages. But what we have is a 930-page bill. So why is the bill that long? And the answer is it's really not a cap-and-trade bill. It's a cap and trade and give away the allowances provided that you uh, follow the conditions that are written by federal agencies. Plus, we've got a lot of regulations you've got to follow, too, to be all written by federal agencies. And this is really rather unfortunate because such an approach where the federal government, where the executive agencies tell people how to adopt is going to make the um, uh, consequences for the economy are far greater. 
uh, a far greater implicit tax on the economy than if the job was done some other way. So you might want to ask, uh, why is it that uh, we have such an approach going through the legislative process, one that so increases the power of the federal government at the expense of the private sector, an approach that, to such a large extent, transfers power from Congress to the executive branch? Uh, and I think there's two reasons. First of all, uh, delegating power in this way uh, is better for members of Congress because it lets them distance themselves from the inevitable disappointments uh, and trade-offs that are involved in writing these regulations that are going to be necessary under the statute. And second of all, the legislators can get away with it because the constitutional doctrine against delegation and the public sentiment that Congress should not buck the big choices to the executive branch uh, has been has withered away. Uh, now, I've argued in some of these books that have been mentioned that this kind of delegation is bad in general, and that's one book called Power Without Responsibility. I've also argued in another book uh, that it's not needed in particular in the environmental context to protect the environment, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. Um, that would be tiresome. I want to talk about how this happened. How did we go through, undergo such a, a transformation? The received history, to use a term that was used earlier this afternoon, is that during the uh, Great Depression, big business got a conservative Supreme Court to invalidate New Deal legislation on the basis of the delegation doctrine. Uh, this doctrine was a, to use Frankfurter's term, a jejune abstraction, an empty abstraction, and the real motive here was um, private greed trying to trump public purpose. And when that all became clear, then the Supreme Court turned around and got it straight, and then the delegation doctrine got swept away. Now, Amity Schles, in her wonderful book, uh, really knocks down this uh, um, mistaken impression on a number of different scores. She first of all points out that the Schechters were not a big business. They were not United Chicken. They were the Schechter brothers. Uh, and indeed, they supported FDR, it seems. They also had real justice on their side. This was not some kind of just petty private greed. And that indeed, some of the justices who invoked the delegation doctrine in their support were liberals, not conservatives. So the stereotypical impression of what happened to the delegation doctrine and why it had to go uh, is just simply wrong. Um, now, there are other aspects of the received history I want to go into as well. Uh, one of these ideas is that the delegation doctrine was a kind of a stale, leftover, stray idea that some framers had that never got paid any attention to until 1935, uh, and then it was resurrected for these purposes. There's a really rather wonderful book, another wonderful book by Robert H. Wiebe called Self-Rule. And it, it takes, it's, over, it's about really the idea of self-rule in the United States from the time of the revolution, pretty much down to the present. And the story he tells is one where the America of the, of the time of the Constitution was an America ruled pretty much by elites. But by the time that President Jackson came along, things had changed, that the average citizen became much more sure of himself, herself, uh, and along with that came certain changes such as uh, we no longer had the property qualification to vote, 
the idea was that your opinion was really worth something as long as you were a self-sustaining, self-supporting person. You didn't have to be a smarty pants. You didn't have to go to college. If you sustained yourself, you were, your ideas were, were worthy of, of being paid attention to. And people affirmatively pay, felt proud to live in a country where the laws were made by people we elect. Not a country where the people we elect tell somebody else to make the laws. So it's not an old, that old of a stale idea. And what killed the doctrine off, what killed this idea off, it's killed is too strong a word, but what mutilated the idea was not the New Deal. The death or the decline of the delegation doctrine started much earlier than that. It started with the progressives at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, uh, and what was going on was that uh, we had a new class in America, the class that ran the big new corporations. We finally had national-scale corporations, and, and we be called this group of people the national class. These are the people who went to Ivy League schools, looked down on people on Main Street, and their general idea is that power should be shifted from the states to the federal government and from the legislative branch to expert commissions. In other words, get power out of the hands of those beholden to voters and give power to those with specialized knowledge. And, uh, and the people who supported this included people like J.P. Morgan, who didn't like the idea that his railroads were being regulated by state legislatures and were up against competition by upstart individuals. The nerve of these people to be competing with him, Right. He wanted an ICC to stop all that kind of stuff. And it's really a very short move from that type of attitude to the National Recovery Administration. And indeed, John Rockefeller very much supported the National Recovery Administration code that prevented hot oil from flowing. John Rockefeller was very much upset by the Panama refining case, which was the first case that did something to question the constitutionality of the National Industrial Recovery Act. Well, we all know what happened from there. Uh, the court changed in composition. Uh, the court was bold, was scared by the court packing plan. Then we had World War II, a time when it was not really a time to think about uh, a government by committee where you really did want to have some strong executive leadership. And so a uh, passage of time meant that the, these foundational principles began to be forgotten, uh, dismissed, uh, and in any event, somewhat inconceivable, because how could we go back to that way of doing things when, after all, we had all these big agencies that we seem to be depending upon, and they have such broad delegated power. But then, strangely enough, things began to change. And they began to change first in the 50s and then in the 60s, and in the 60s, you had people, some pretty liberal justices and judges like uh, William Douglas, like Skelly Wright, writing opinions questioning this broad delegation of legislative power. And it came out of, a, of an atmosphere where, first of all, people began to understand that the progressive conceit that expert knowledge solved problems was wrong. Just because you had expert knowledge, just because you had science doesn't mean you know the right public policy prescription. So that idea began to go by the wayside. Also began to go by the wayside was the idea that these executive agencies that they necessarily regulated in the public interest. 
it could be well be that they regulated in the interest of those who passed their appropriations, who hired them after they left work, who appointed them to the job. And there began to be a number of scandals about how these supposedly uh, public-interested, public-regarding agencies were operating. And you had people like Ralph Nader coming along uh, saying that really Congress shouldn't be passing the buck, that we'd be getting better environmental protection if uh, Congress took more responsibility. And frankly, my own transition from being a National Resources Defense Council public interest advocate to being somebody who believes in the delegation doctrine had something to do with Nader's writings from the 60s and, and early 70s. Um, so in any event, uh, there began to be a change in, in public sentiment, and that change began to be reflected in, in a variety of, of Supreme Court opinions. And these opinions, at least at first, did not use the word delegation. But what they did do in a variety of contexts was to invalidate congressional statutes that did delegate legislative power to somebody else. Now, the court stood back from and did not actually invalidate a statute that endowed an expert agency with power to legislate, at least when it was legislating within the power of its expertise. But in another of, of a number of other contexts, it did stop Congress from delegating legislative power to others. For example, in the Chadha case, it stopped the delegation of legislative power from the Article I process to one or two houses of Congress. In the Clinton versus New York case, it prevented the president from repealing an appropriation. Uh, in other contexts, in, indeed, um, uh, well, I'm not, I see I'm out of time, so I'm not going to enumerate the examples. Um, it did read, it also read statutes that delegated legislative power to agencies to read the statutes more narrowly to avoid delegation problems. There are a number of cases like this, some written by people like William O. Douglas and Justice Stevens. And then finally, and I think most tellingly, there's a case called Loving versus United States. And this is dicta in that case, and I think it's very telling dictum. Article 1's precise rules of representation, member qualifications, bicameralism, and voting procedures make Congress the branch most capable of responsive and deliberative article of lawmaking. The delegation doctrine has developed to prevent Congress from forsaking its duties. That seemed to many people a very clear signal that the court was waking up to a change in public sentiment. And indeed, then a case came along uh, that seemed to offer maybe the prospect of some further advance. And it was a case called American Trucking, and it arose under the Clean Air Act, uh, which tells EPA to set standards to protect public health from air pollution. The problem with the statute is that there really is no threshold between uh, a safe and an unsafe level of uh, air pollution, and so the statute, in effect, gave EPA complete carte blanche as to how clean is clean enough. That was the problem. And um, 
of course, there was, uh, there was a way of cabining EPA's power, which was to say, well, the threat to health has to be significant. But Administrator Carol Browner, as head of EPA in that case, said, no, no, we don't have to make that kind of finding. Protect health is what I say it means. That was, in essence, her position. Now, there was no way that the Supreme Court ever was going to strike the Clean Air Act down. That was too much like the New Deal, anti, the New Deal stereotype of public greed defeating an important public purpose. But there was a way of moving forward, and the way of moving forward was to follow an earlier case dealing with benzene under the occupational laws, which read the statute to say, that statute to say, that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration could not regulate under that statute unless the harm to health was significant. A cabining of, but not a, uh, of the agency's power. And the lawyer for, um, f- for the American trucking plaintiffs in the Clean Air Act case knew very well about the benzene case because, in fact, he'd argued it. So, I mean, he really had a slam-dunk winner, not to declare the, the Clean Air Act unconstitutional, but to cabin its meaning, to send a message to the public we, the Supreme Court, think the delegation doctrine is important, and we're paying attention. Right? So this is what happened. The lawyer for American trucking, perhaps he was instructed by his clients, said the way to reduce the delegation problem in this case is to read the statute to say that EPA can only regulate if the benefits of regulation exceed the costs. So now I was, I'm sitting there in the audience, I've, uh, um, and I'm listening to the oral argument, and Justice Stevens asked this, asked this question. You say that the statute to protect health is too vague, but you say it would be less vague if the statute were to read to protect health so long as it does not cost too much. <laughs> now at that point, the entire courtroom burst into laughter because it was obviously clear from that question that industry big business was not opposing delegation. It was rather embracing delegation, but wanting its terms to be changed in a way that appeared to be more favorable to it. In other words, it was selling the delegation doctrine down the river. So I think this underscores Amity's point that this is not a question of big business versus the little guy. It's It's a question of government officials versus average citizens. At this point, it seems to me we've lost two things. We've lost at least for the time being, the court as a guardian of the requirement that people we elect take responsibility for the hard choices. And we've also lost any degree of public clarity and why it's important to do so. And maybe somewhere down the road, um, uh, it'll be possible to regain that, but I'm thinking of going back to being an economist. (laughs) Thanks, David. Uh, our final panelist is Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen is a professor of law at George Washington University and the legal affairs editor of The New Republic. His most recent book is The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries That Defined America. He's also the author of The Most Democratic Branch, The Naked Crowd, and The Unwanted Gaze. Uh, Professor Rosen is a graduate of, of Harvard College, Oxford University, where he was a Marshall Scholar and Yale Law School. The Chicago Tribune named him one of the 10 best magazine journalists in America, and the L.A. Times has called him the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. So please welcome Jeffrey Rosen. 
Thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure to be here at Cato. Uh, so if David Schoenbrod wrote the book that led Judge Ginsburg to create the phrase the Constitution in Exile, and Gene gives me credit for popularizing the phrase the Constitution in Exile, then Randy, uh, David just joked as we began, is the Constitution in Exile. <laughs> Now, it pains me, ladies and gentlemen, to come to Cato and say that the Constitution in exile, whether embodied by Randy or by uh, anyone else, uh, is not faring very well at this moment. Uh, This is an age when the Obama administration is engaged on a kind of second New Deal, repudiating limits on government power that uh, uh, many thought even survived the New Deal revolution. And perhaps even more distressingly for libertarians, the Roberts Court far from being sympathetic to resurrecting these limits, has proved to be aggressively pro-business in a way that's disappointed both libertarians and economic populists alike. How did this happen? That's what I want to ask in my brief remarks here. I think uh, the way that it happened is that there have, in fact, been two wings of the conservative legal movement over the past 30 years. One is the libertarian constitution in exile wing, so ably represented by Cato, by the Institute for Justice, by scholars like Randy and others. Uh, And the other we might call the pro-business wing. Uh, This is represented most ably by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, whose mission is to defend the unified interests of American business, and which has proved to be remarkably successful in recent years, both in supporting the nomination and confirmation of uh, Supreme Court justices, both Democratic and Republican, who are sympathetic to business interests and suspicious of what they call regulation by litigation, uh, and uh, and uh, that, in fact, these two movements were in far more significant tension with each other than I initially understood when I wrote that uh, Constitution in Exile article. Uh, so uh, I'd like to think a little bit about the tension between these two movements. Uh, for the sake of uh, disclosure, I should say I'm going to draw on uh, uh, a symposium that Santa Clara Law School recently did on the Roberts Court in big business. If you're interested in the topic, there's some very good contributions to the symposium that have statistics to back some of these points up. But you see the difference between the libertarian and the pro-business conservatives. Libertarian conservatives embrace constitutional judicial activism and arguments about original understanding. Pro-business conservatives are more interested in using statutory arguments to check regulation by litigation. Libertarians think the pro-business conservatives are more interested in promoting corporate interests uh, than in a principled commitment to limited government. Pro-business conservatives respond that being conservative doesn't always mean being pro-big business. And the ideological distance between these two groups is most obviously seen by their very different response to the TARP legislation and to the economic recovery package in general. Unlike the libertarians, the Chamber of Commerce is not opposed to the economic bailout. Last January, the chamber wrote to Congress that it strongly supported the broad outlines of the TARP and the stimulus bill, although it expressed concerns about some of the lobbying provisions. TARP relies on centralized regulatory bodies to promote economic well-being and corporate responsibility rather than relying on regulation by litigation, which is what the chamber doesn't like. The libertarians, by contrast, are understandably distressed by the TARP. Again, in January, Freedom Works, uh, the organization chaired by Dick Armey, declared that Congress has unconstitutionally delegated lawmaking power to the president and Freedom Work plans to file a lawsuit. I'm not sure what the current 
state is. Some of you may know better than I, alleging that TARP violates the non-delegation doctrine recognized in cases before the New Deal, which holds that Congress can't delegate legislative authority to the executive without intelligible principles to guide its discretion. Now, the Freedom Works lawsuit, which I think is being supported, uh, certainly in spirit at least, by Cato, is not the only potential uh, libertarian challenge to TARP that's on the horizon. Uh, Lawrence Tribe of Harvard identifies a number of possible constitutional challenges to the bailout, even beyond the excessive delegation challenges. Uh, the libertarians might claim that TARP violates the constitutional requirement that taxing measures have to originate in the House rather than the Senate, question some of the appointment procedures for the Recovery, Accountability, and Transparency Board, the aptly named RAT Board, uh, which is responsible for preventing fraud and abuse, argue that states can't be forced to change their unemployment laws as a condition of accepting bailout funds, and challenge home foreclosure provisions of the stimulus bill as unconstitutional seizures of property without just compensation. Uh, what's so striking about all of these lawsuits, ladies and gentlemen, is I'm sorry to stand at this particular podium in the Hayek Auditorium and say this, but almost all of them are certain to fail. Uh, you might find one or two libertarian-minded uh, district court judges buying some of them. Maybe some circuit might take the bait. But on the Roberts Court, you're unlikely to get uh, more than a single vote uh, on behalf of these uh, lawsuits. And I would think that, that the most sympathetic uh, justice might be Justice Thomas, who's shown more uh, sympathy for resurrecting some of these uh, pre-New Deal limitations than anyone else. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of sympathy on the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is demonstrated by the statistics that, to varying degrees, all nine justices of the Roberts Court, you might not even get Justice Thomas, share this suspicion of regulation by litigation. About 40% of the court's docket is now made up of business cases, up from 30% in recent years. 79% of them are decided by margins of seven to two or better. Many of them are unanimous. So those who focus on the five to four splits in the culture war cases are missing this overwhelming consensus in the business cases. Uh, the, the record becomes slightly more compli complicated if you put in environment, labor, and employment cases, which are of interest to business, but these are cases where the, the justices have uh, strong ideological preconceptions. And Justice Breyer told me in an interview that uh, it's really the more technical cases where the justices don't have strong views that they're more likely to be unanimous. But all the other business cases, from punitive damages to preemption to false claims acts to security suits to antitrust cases, where the Roberts Court decided something like, uh, I think it was five antitrust cases in its first couple of years, and all of them went in favor of the corporate defendant. All of these are, are cases where the business community and the Chamber of Commerce are doing extremely well. Uh, so why is this? Why, why are pro-business conservatives so successful? Why the libertarians have petered out? The obvious example is that, as uh, David's fascinating uh, history shows, there's no William O. Douglas on the current Supreme Court. No one who, say, who would say, as Douglas famously did, that he was going to bend the law against the corporations and in favor of the environment. There's no Skelly Wright economic populist. And that's not a coincidence either. It reflects very disciplined, successful uh, lobbying by the Chamber of Commerce, who argued for the nomination of justices like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and especially Stephen Breyer, who was enthusiastically supported by the chamber and opposed most vocally by Ralph Nader at the time, as well as Roberts and Alito, uh, who won out over some more libertarian-minded candidates during the Bush administration. 
And Roberts and Alito have vindicated the chamber's hopes. Roberts, of course, worked for the chamber as a lawyer in private practice. And uh, the stats were run by this uh, Santa Clara symposium. But uh, both Roberts and Alito have proved not to be committed originalists, don't have a state's rights ideology, are more interested in supporting national power than limiting it. Uh, Mitchell Pickering has shown that Roberts and Alito vote for the federal government over the states more frequently than O'Connor and Rehnquist. David Franklin has suggested that the justices most likely to vote against preemption were Stevens, followed by Thomas. Brad Jundef has noted that the Federalism Five, the conservatives, are 15 percent more likely to vote for federal preemption than the liberal dissenters. And Vikram Amar notes that Roberts and Alito don't buy into the Scalia and Thomas opposition to punitive damages. Uh, Now, uh, I talked about Thomas as the only potential friend of Cato in some of these suits. What about uh, Scalia? Uh, as his defection to the nationalist side in Gonzalez and Ray shows, as, as, as Randy argued so uh, poignantly, uh, he has little interest in the broader project of resurrecting a pre-New Deal understanding of the limits of federal power. And his defection to nationalism was foreshadowed at Cato. I don't know if the Hayek Auditorium was up. No, this building was not built then. I remember when it uh, was, but it was the previous Cato building. And there was a debate at Cato in 1984 between Scalia, then Judge Scalia, and Richard Epstein on behalf of the libertarians. And Scalia defended the view that judges should restrain themselves from overturning legislation in the name of rights or liberties not clearly and expressly enumerated in the Constitution. He had questions about unlimited federal power, but he didn't like Roe or Lochner and didn't want to make up constitutional rights. Epstein, of course, his head exploded. He was just furious about this. He threw away his prepared remarks. He spontaneously attacked Scalia. He said there were many statutes that violated enumerated powers and called out for a quick and easy kill, defended economic judicial activism. Uh, Scalia would have nothing of it at Cato. And similarly on the court, he's had little of it as well did not join Justice Thomas's concurrence in the Lopez case that tried to resurrect a pre-New Deal understanding of the commerce power, and uh, therefore his position in race uh, should be little uh, surprise. All right, so briefly, what does the future bring? Could we have an economic populist uh, on the Obama court? During the campaign, Obama talked in terms that might suggest he'd be interested in appointing a William O. Douglas. He said he wanted a justice who would favor the powerless rather than the powerful. He said that his model was Earl Warren, who understood the practical effects of Supreme Court decisions on ordinary Americans. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, Judge Sotomayor... Uh, 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 preliminary studies of her record in business cases suggest that she's not an economic populist in the Douglas mode. Business Week has done a preliminary survey which suggests that she's quite moderate on business issues, perhaps reflecting her record as a commercial litigator. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has not yet taken a stand on her uh, nomination. I'm just reading through her uh, business opinions right now, but based on the uh, preliminary evidence, it does not look like she will radically change the current balance on the court, which has a bipartisan suspicion of regulation by litigation. So that leaves only one final uh, question. Uh, David talked about how the court responds to the change zeitgeist. It does indeed follow the election returns. Could the new mood in light of the economic collapse make economic populism more fashionable and cause liberals and conservatives on the court to question their free market orientation? It's true that skepticism of regulation by litigation may be less fashionable now that even Alan Greenspan has uh, said that he's shocked, shocked by the excesses of the market. There's this recent study that securities lawsuits are up by 70 percent over uh, the past two years. 
Uh, could the Supreme Court respond to this uh, change and have less uh, denunciation of regulation by litigation? Well, in the end, on this question, as all questions in our national life, only Justice Kennedy knows. Uh, <laughs> But it's true, as the Chamber of Commerce shows, that it's possible enthusiastically to support regulation by litigation, uh, to support the TARP and the stimulus bill, uh, sorry, to support regulation by legislation like TARP and the stimulus bill and oppose regulation by litigation. So therefore, I'd suppose that even if you find the Obama-Roberts court a little bit more sympathetic to shareholder suits, you will not find it more sympathetic to challenges to the core of the Obama economic program, to resurrecting the non-delegation doctrine and so forth. Uh, and I cannot imagine Justice Kennedy transforming himself into William O. Douglas. Uh, so for that reason, uh, the organizers of this Cato Symposium have performed a great service, although we have to end on a rather uh, sad note uh, for those of a libertarian orientation by calling our attention to a pro-business but non-libertarian orientation of the Roberts Court, an orientation that's now likely to continue for decades to come. Thank you very much. We have some time for questions and discussion. Uh, if, you please, if you raise your hand, I'll call on you. Uh, please wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you have if you, if you want to. And uh, please make them actual questions and not uh, stem winder speeches. Uh, something that ends in a question mark. Yes, sir, in the back. Bertie, a banking consultant. Um, the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation a few years ago created an agency, quasi-agency known affectionately as Peekaboo, or the uh, Public Accounting Public Accounting uh, Oversight uh, Board, and uh, it's uh, it has uh, effectively a, a taxing authority. It has a board of. Uh, of, of, of directors, if you will, that are appointed by the SEC but not subject to uh, Senate contra, uh, confirmation. Questions have been raised about the uh, the constitutionality of Peekaboo, and I'm not sure that it has been uh, uh, challenged in in the courts. But I'd be interested in, in what your 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 sense of that is in terms of the. Uh, the powers that uh, have been delegated to the SEC and in turn to uh, uh, Peekaboo under Sarbanes-Oxley, if that is an aspect of delegation that maybe goes just uh, a mile too far. Anyone? Take it away, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> Stump the panel. <laughs> All right. What's right? I'll, I'll say something. Uh, I don't. I mean, it seems to me that if there's a problem there, it's an appointments clause problem, not a delegation problem. Is that the uh, competitive enterprise suit? There's a suit under the appointments clause. I think on that. Got to ask Randy. All right. <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, this is a young Yun, uh, economist from George Mason University. Uh, what kind of economic theory do lawyers use in supporting or not supporting federal government bailouts? 
Most of us go to law school because we're not good at math. <laughs> I don't know that we have an economic theory. What it's a great question, which I will now repeat so that you can answer it, David. What so kind of convenient? What, what kind of economic arguments do lawyers use uh, for or against various kinds of legislation? I mean, I'll take a stab at it. David's the economist, and, and he'll answer it properly. But the lawyers on the Supreme Court, who are suspicious of regulation by litigation, as they call it, tend to come from what's called the Chicago School of Economics, which uh, views regulations in terms of their its efficiency and it uh, uses things like cost-benefit analysis to decide whether or not regulation is likely to achieve its stated aims. There are different schools of the Chicago uh, School. The uh, most conservative justices ascribe to it unapologetically, and Justice Scalia is a Chicago School uh, and former Chicago professor. Justice Breyer is the head of what's called the Harvard School of Antitrust Enforcement, which also uh, believes that too much antitrust regulation may not favor consumers, but is slightly more modern and is more willing to tolerate uh, regulation than the Chicago people are. Uh, but then there's this third school, which is unrepresented on the current court, which believes, like David's former boss, Ralph Nader, does, that really it's the little guy, the consumer, who, uh, whose interests are most important. And even if more broadly, a particular jury verdict, for example, in a case involving an exploding heart device may not be economically efficient for re regulating the heart device industry, it's still important, these economic populists believe, to compensate the actual victims of uh, negligence and corporate malfeasance. Uh, so that's a first stab, but David, you can do better than that, I think. That was perfect. Okay. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> David Worley, Leadership Institute. My question is, if the court is not interested in restricting federal power or establishing any of the old restrictions that once existed, what other options are there to attempt to reestablish those controls on the expansion of the government? Well, I um, had a uh, for I had a Wall Street Journal op-ed and then a Forbes.com follow-up. Uh, my Wall Street Journal op-ed, I proposed um, what I called a federalism amendment, and in my and the Forbes.com follow-up, I expanded upon that into what I called a bill of federalism, which were ten amendments to the Constitution, which would reestablish a balance between the state and federal power. Um, and I have to tell you that in working on that uh, proposal for several weeks. Uh, for one thing, I renewed my admiration for the framers of the Constitution and also for James Madison in particular, who framed the Bill of Rights, how difficult it was to act, come up with language that you might want to have taken seriously that would both have the effect you want it to have and not have the effect you don't want it to have. Um, and so it was quite an exercise. So um, it's a specific set of proposals in order to do this. And the, and the political uh, suggestion here is not that we um, actually end up having these amendments ratified because that's quite unlikely, but that the process – right now you have states, legislatures passing what they call sovereignty resolutions, which assert their sovereignty under the Tenth Amendment. These are, in my view, entirely symbolic, non-legal or extra-legal uh, resolutions which would have no effect on the current body of constitutional law. But what could have an effect – on both the courts as well as Congress is a movement by states under Article 5, which they have the po constitutional power to do, to propose uh, – uh, to, to demand that Congress convene a convention to propose amendments. This is a power that states have under Article 5. 
if two-thirds of the states uh, make such a demand, Congress, the Constitution says Congress shall convene a convention to propose amendments. Um, and what uh, has happened in the past when uh, there has been an indigenous grassroots movement uh, on behalf of uh, a convention that would propose amendments, and in this case it would be resolutions for particular amendments, is that when it gets cl- when it gets some political traction and it starts getting closer, um, the political establishment responds and the courts respond. I mean, take the ERA, which is not a con- was not as a result of a convention movement, but was a result of a, an amendment that was proposed to the Congress to the states by Congress. Uh, when the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, came close to ratification, the Supreme Court changed its jurisprudence to be relatively consistent with what the ERA would have required, and so there was never an amendment. And the same is true, for example, of the direct election of senators and the abolition of the 17th Amendment. Um, there was a con- call for a constitutional convention that came one state short of having it. And, and, ra- and to avoid a constitutional convention to propose amendments, Congress itself proposed the amendment of the 17th Amendment to abolish the uh, – uh, so, to create the direct election of senators. So this is all a long way of saying that if you want to go to do something other than judicial action, which I want to agree with Jeff, I think it would be for, – for, for the reasons he said as well as for other reasons that I could say – I could elaborate on uh, – hopeless, relatively hopeless, uh, this is a way of, of states to exert some pushback against federal power if there is a political will in the, some of the states to do that. And if there isn't, then, of course, the answer is you're not going to do that either. I want to chime oh. – I'd like to chime in and, and agree with Randy um, and maybe put it this way. You could think about Supreme Court decisions as being kind of like a, a superstructure that is built upon a foundation, and the foundation is political will. It's an understanding on the part of citizens about why these principles are important to us. And it seems to me that that's what's been lost along the way, the the sense of why we lose when um, uh, Congress delegates, when Congress takes powers that could be exercised by the states as well or better and exercises them at the federal level. And... And the reason I wrote that book called Saving Our Environment was to try to make the case in that particular particularized context that we do lose out when these things happen. Now, it seems to me that um, regardless of the good intentions of the Obama administration and the new Congress, I'm not saying they're wise intentions, but good intentions, uh, mistakes will be made. Opportunities will come along for uh, scholarship, for analysis to show that the public loses out. And that's where institutions like Cato come, come in and, and others of you in the audience who are going to be doing analysis to show what the consequences are. And so it seems to me it's a long-term process. It's not like somebody could think of some new theory that next month is going to produce a vindication in court. And if I just echoing uh, Randy and David's idea that you would need some kind of citizen movement either to get the Supreme Court to respond or to get a constitutional amendment passed, I fear that at the moment the political will is not there. That's why both TARP and Obama are so incredibly popular and uh, Cato is, as John Ashcroft uh, unkindly uh, called it, uh, a, a, a vocal and a distinct minority. You know, 20% of the country is supposed to have libertarian sympathies, whether liberal or conservative, not enough to pass an amendment or to really get a movement going. There's one other possibility. It's not a libertarian possibility, but the kind of progressive liberal paternalism represented by Louis Brandeis, who was the greatest champion of transparency, not, talked not only of sunlight as a disinfectant, but actually voted to strike down parts of the New Deal because he thought the point 
of separation of powers was not to promote uh, efficiency, but accountability. You can imagine someone like Cass Sunstein in the Obama regulatory office, if it was done in a nudge kind of way, uh, setting up new offices of inspector uh, generals or new transparency review boards. It's the kind of bureaucracy Cato doesn't like, but Obama has been so keen on transparency that some form of oversight boards created by uh, the executive branch might be useful. And then the final oversight mechanism is the Internet, which has many uh, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses. It can be uh, uh, quite raucous, but it's very good at oversight and might, uh, if there's serious corruption uh, or misuse of funds that was unreported, ferret that sort of thing out and bring it to public attention. We have time for a couple more, I think. In the corner over there. My name is uh, Peter Twig. I'm a George Mason University graduate student, also in economics. Uh, and I'm kind of curious with, uh, the pro- with the prognosis that Professor Rosen gives that's pretty cynical for the likelihood of a libertarian turn in jurisprudence uh, in the next several decades. I'm, I guess I'm curious about if there are that, – that there's presumably some kind of like ceiling on, you know, eventually you have no real restraint on government power because some progressive ideology has just said, you know, government can do anything or federal power is basically, you know, there's no limits anymore. Um, and I guess I'm curious if there there are any, like, real marginal areas that you think could come up in the next uh, couple decades, given not just on the current docket, but given the likely direction of policy uh, with the Obama administration or possibly beyond that, uh, issues that could be, you know, come before the court and possibly change uh, areas of law in a non-libertarian direction that we might have to watch out for. Take uh, genetic selection and cloning, one 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 of the more interesting areas to think about. You could well imagine both Congress and the states passing laws saying that uh, people can't choose embryos based on intelligence or height. There was a deaf lesbian couple that tried to choose a a, a deaf child. Or even you could imagine uh, uh, two gay men wanting to clone a kid biologically related to both men. Here's the hypothetical. You take the stem cell, uh, coax it into uh, a an ovum, fertilize it with a sperm from the other man, have a kid related to both people. Congress bans this. It says can't be done. It violates some basic idea of dignity. The libertarian position would say, no, you can, the right to reproduce includes the right to not reproduce or to choose what kind of kids you want to have. Uh, and you can imagine liberal and conservative libertarians joining that position. The social conservatives against this would be joined by feminists who think that this sort of thing discriminates against girl babies and is bad for uh, girls to be selected against. And I would imagine uh, the Obama court for the reason that there aren't, you know, Kennedy might vote uh, to strike down a bill like this because it violates some autonomy principle. But the Obama Roberts court as a whole would uphold it. And I I just give that as an example of the kind of futuristic, progressive type, anti-libertarian regulation that might proliferate, and I could see the, the court definitely upholding. How is the court likely to react to the firefighter case that is before it this month, and how will it affect the nomination for the new justice? 
Anybody? Well, I, actually, uh, Bill, if you don't mind, I, I don't. I want to uh, uh, not answer that question. And <laughs> since there's only three minutes left, something that Jeff said, or, or I sort of want to respond a little bit to what Jeff said in his talk, and not to disagree with it, because uh, I, I don't really know enough about. I, first of all, I don't know the data on which this. Uh, 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 analysis of the, of the Roberts Court has been done, and I don't know, and, I, and it doesn't intuitively strike me as it doesn't strike me as counterintuitive. It may very well be right, but there's another dimension. I mean, so Jeff made the dichotomy between the pro-business conservatives and the libertarian conservatives, and I think that there, uh, uh, so that may be right actually. But there's another dichotomy that's really important, and it maybe means something to the people in this room who have witnessed 20 or 25 or maybe 30 years of what you might call the conservative. Uh, uh, legal movement or the conservative intellectual legal movement in this country, and what wonders after having had Republicans make presidential, uh, making uh, nominations to the Supreme Court, and having had years and years of, of of outpouring of scholarship, how could you get to the position where the Supreme Court, uh, where there's no one on the Supreme Court who's willing to stand up and say that this is a bridge too far? Um, uh, not even a bridge to nowhere, but just a bridge too far. Um, uh, how did we get to this position? And I think that's. Be- I think you have to realize that there, in fact, are two strains of uh, judicial conservatism, or, or, con- or two strains of the judicial conservative movement. One is a judicial conservative himself, and and judicial conservatives, and and Justice Scalia, I think, belongs in this category, um, are what I have called in other forum unreconstructed Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudence. Um, so it really fits into the topic of this conference. They, they do not question the jurisprudence of the Roosevelt New Deal Court. In fact, they, as I think the Rach case shows, they go beyond the jurisprudence of the Roosevelt New Deal Court and their beef – it, and, and how they got to be political conservatives, their beef is with the, with the uh, modified or the reconstructed Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudence in the Warren Court who started protecting certain rights that the New Deal Court wasn't all that interested in, either, either in the criminal procedure area uh, or in the, for example, in the personal, er, personal liberties area, like, the, for example, the right of privacy. So it's the right of privacy, the unenumerated right of privacy that drives these conservatives crazy. And that, and they, and, and they are judicial conservatives, and, and that's part of this conservative intellectual movement. There's another strain of the conservative intellectual movement, and that's the originalist strain of the conservative intellectual movement. Uh, Justice Scalia will put, pre- will quite explicitly defend the practice of putting precedent ahead of original public meaning, original meaning of the Constitution, and he specifically does so with respect to the New Deal cases, and so does. Robert Bork in his book, The Tempting of America. But then the originalist strain of the modern conservative movement are willing to put the original public meaning of the Constitution above Supreme Court precedents, many of which were decided in the New Deal, but many of which were decided prior to the New Deal. And this is not necessarily just an anti-New Deal maneuver. Um, And so that is a conflict that exists within the conservative intellectual movement, and the justices that have been nominated to the Supreme Court by Republicans have largely come from the first of these two groups and not from the second of these two groups. One justice who might have come from the second group, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Doug Ginsburg, Judge Doug Ginsburg, his confirmation hearing went south, and Justice Thomas is sort of in between the two groups, which is why sometimes you get different kinds of opinions from him than you will from others. But other than that, this is what's happened. This is what 30 years of judicial conservative uh, uh, intelligentsia and political uh, operations have, have delivered us. We are now defenseless. We're constitutionally defenseless against this onslaught 
against individual liberty and limited government. And then the only kind of avenues we have are grassroots political activism of the kind that I was recommending as a last resort, not as a first resort, but as a last resort. Okay, I think we'll end there and uh, head up to the reception. Thank you all. Thank you.